All right, let's get right to work. Go ahead and join me in a moment of prayer here. Jesus, I thank you again for your word. I thank you for the challenge uh, your word brings. I know this week for me especially, um, this, was, this was challenging. And, and I pray that in this, uh, we will be able to discern what it is you call us to. Uh, and in that, though, realize that it is by your grace that we will be able to accomplish these things. And Jesus, that puts things in tension for us because, again, it's very hard to say, by grace, here's what we are called to. Because we go, well, wait, doesn't grace forgive? Well, we know from this great book, the book of Titus, that grace empowers, grace strengthens, grace gives determination, grace gives a sense of priority. And I pray for all of those elements of your grace to really drive us today. So we look to you to teach us and to show us and to guide us in all grace that plays out in true godliness. Not godliness that is simply duty-bound, but a godliness that delights in what you have to say to us. A godliness that delights in worshiping you in all that we do. So we look to you now. We ask you to teach us in your grace, in your name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, we have... Uh, over the last few weeks, looked at essential design. We have looked at the essential design for men, for women, for husbands, and for wives. And now we come to the final portion of this design series, right? We're going to move on to one last thing in Titus after today. But we come to this last stage, which is essential home. Essential home, also known as, does Jesus live with us? Or only visits. Ow. Alright, so um, this one, probably more than the others, I found to be the biggest challenge. I think a lot of people, when we went into this, thought, oh man, Matt's going to have an interesting time when he deals with women and wives because he's a dude. And he, you know, might sound kind of chauvinistic or might sound pushy or might be too laxed and doesn't want to pick a fight with his wife. You know, whatever it is, you know. So, so what's he going to do with that? But really, for me, I found the toughest one to be this topic because, you know, for maybe a variety of reasons, but, but one of the big ones is when I look at this, I see that in my own life, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not what I'm supposed to be, right? I mean, I really, I can honestly look and go, hey, man, there's a lot of good things about my home, but there's some things I don't do so well that I know Jesus wants me to do better on. And so just... The personal confrontation that goes on in preparing something like this is very, very challenging. So I let you know that as we go through today, I'm not coming to you from an ivory tower beckoning to the masses saying, here's what you should do because this is what I do. What I'm saying to all of us is, eh, this is what God calls us to. And, and in that, again, like I was praying just a minute ago, it's by grace that we should accomplish that. But we're also going to be confronted by what it is Jesus wants us to accomplish in our homes. So that's one reason it makes it hard. I think another thing that makes this topic a little bit challenging is just the topic of parenting that's going to come into some of this. Uh, parenting is a weird deal. I want to say for the record, parents are freaks. All right? Um, no, we are, we are jacked up, bizarre freaks. Um, we are freaks when it comes to uh, just even like parenting styles, you know, we kind of find ours and then we look at other people's style and we're like, oh, it's too bad she does that, right? You know, like, 
Like, can you believe? You know, I mean, that's kind of some of the thing. And, and we joked about it last week. How you choose to educate your kids can bring some level of critique or criticism or judgment. One of the crazy things that happens with parents is we feel this subtle competition, you know, between our kids. You know, well, my child got an A in algebra. Well, my child got an A plus in algebra. You know, like, you know, this, this subtle thing that we feel like we need to deliver. We feel like... You know, we, we can't, we don't have to be the best family, but we certainly don't want to be the worst family, right? And so we, we feel that need, that pressure, that challenge to kind of perform, right? Um, there's just those kinds of things that get in the way. So we can be a little bit sensitive as parents as far as when we start to deal with the topic of, of parenting. I think a third thing that makes this challenging is the fact that in, you know, the last handful of decades... Life has changed dramatically, and so figuring out how you bring kind of the principles of biblical parenting into real-life environments becomes a bit more challenging. You have to figure out how to apply at different levels. In fact, uh, here's a great example of this. Let's bring up this first picture here. This was life in the 50s, right? Now you bring up life today, it's changed, right? Just a bit. And what's crazy about this picture is the bottom one is actually a marketing campaign for Frontier Communications. Like, this is why you want our service, right? Like, I'm like, really? That's the big idea. But on top of that, what's weird is the older people in the room right now are looking at that top picture going, oh, that was so great. That was the way it used to be. It was so awesome. Man, we've missed those days where there's younger people looking at the same picture going, that would be horrible. Like, like, did, did you actually have to turn the page by hand? Or, you know, like, I mean, just point and it did it, you know what I mean? And only one for the whole family? How evil is that, right? So, you know, just life conditions have changed. And so it makes this topic a little bit more challenging as well. But then I think there's one final thing that makes it really, really hard. And that is, and this is going to be something where when I say it, some people will be bothered by it, but I stand behind it, and I stand behind it as one who would say this is true of his own life. Uh, we turn family into an idol. We idolize family in our culture. And by the way, Jesus says idols aren't good. Idols are wrong. Idols are bad. Idols are sin. Now, does that mean family's bad, wrong, and sin? No. It doesn't mean that. But, but what I do believe is that in the current climate, and especially in the evangelical church climate, we so elevate family in the way that God wants us to elevate it, but it almost can become like a God in and of itself, an idol unto itself, where even though we say God is first, the way we live, the way we think, the way we operate, where we put our time, our talents, our treasures, is way more into family being the center, and Jesus is just a satellite that orbits that center of the family, and we call on Him when we have need. We call on Him at certain times, at dinner time, at bedtime, during hard times, at Christmas time, right? Like, oh, hey, this it's your birthday, man, show up. But a lot of the rest of life, it's about a sort of elevating family, practically and functionally. To the point of an idol. Where family dominates more of our thinking than what Jesus wants for our family. Where uh, the family is of first importance even over Jesus. Now we would never say it that way. But the way we start to operate sometimes does that. And I say that as one who when I'm really honest. I know 
this is my challenge. If I, if I was to put down on a list what are my top five uh, most dangerous idols, number one, my wife and my children. Now, does Jesus want me to love my wife and my kids? Absolutely. Is the, the reality of my family of top-tier importance in life? Yes. But there are things where I know I bleed into saying they're, they're almost becoming like gods that I have so much investment into. I trust them more than I trust Jesus. I'm fearful of losing them more than I'm fearful of losing Jesus. Uh, they are of first importance in the way I make all decisions in life instead of Jesus is. And how does my family fit in that context? So I, I, I think all of this is what makes the topic uh, kind of kind of difficult to get our arms around and, and really address, right? So it's, it's going to be a little bit of a ride to do this. Now, I hope an encouraging one, I hope an educational one, but I hope also one where my prayer has been all week and even behind the curtain saying, Jesus, I'm asking your spirit to go before me and say things into hearts that I, I don't even know what it is you want to say. And I do that so that our families can be the absolute best they're meant to be. I believe when Jesus has first place and first importance in the home, the family is going to operate at its peak potential. I absolutely believe that. But it means making sure that Jesus has first importance and that funnels into the whole home. And so that's the mission today. That's what we want to seek to tackle. And so we're going to look at the different components of the home. And the first place I want to start is with the men. Now, as I do this, I want to dive just really, really briefly into the reality that I know for some of you in this room, this will be uniquely challenging because you may be a single mom and you say, you know what, Matt, this is going to be really helpful, but I don't have a man in my life. I don't have a husband. Uh, that is not my situation. What should I do? Well, I, I think there's certain realities that you face that are very different. I was raised by a single mom, so I understand very much the burden you single moms carry. And so in a very real way, even this whole thing that we'll look at with, with men or husbands or dads in the home, it, you, you sort of have to play a surrogate to that. And, and you just know this. You already know it in your bones. You already are doing it. Good single moms, I see them all the time, already doing what I'm going to talk about for husbands and men. So there is a double duty, unfortunately, that you play, but for God's glory, and God will bless you for that. The other encouragement is, man... Take your kids and, and, and find outlets to plug them into that help augment some of that. Maybe it's children's ministry or youth ministry or a big brother program or some man in the church that's really faithful and solid and committed and, and he can start to help and augment that. I mean, there's different options that you may have and I'd say take advantage of that. But I realize that even going into this will be a little bit challenging and I'm, I'm, I, I'm sorry uh, that that is the reality for so many. And hopefully as a church, we can come alongside you even more and better to help you in that. I mean, that's just the challenge. And we love you and pray for you, single moms. When I think about the men, though, in families, I think about husbands and dads and fathers and all of that, I, I think about a simple phrase. I'm going to put it up on the screen with a blank. A man's home is his... See, we always say castle. I think when we look at the Bible... A man's home is his church. But we say castle, and we think king. But really, a man's home is his church, and he is its shepherd. 
Now, I'm not saying that that kind of replaces the local church. That's not my point. Your home, your family is like a micro church men. And as God looks at your life, he says, I've called you to this, this great opportunity to come in and shepherd your home. It's why I've given you authority. It's why I've given you responsibility. It's why I have accountability in your life to do that so that you as men bring Jesus to your homes. Think about how Jesus said husbands are to love. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself for her. And then you look at why he gave himself. So that she might be sanctified. That she might be presented holy and blameless. And washed in the word. And while that's chiefly to your wives. It's really to your home. Where we as men under Christ. We as men empowered by the Holy Spirit. Take the opportunity to shepherd. To lead. To be the spiritual guide. In the environment that God has placed us in. As husbands. Now, in one sense, I go, this is a great privilege, right? I mean, it's a huge privilege. You know, what a blessing that we get to uh, seek to impart the thing that we most hold dear. Our faith. Jesus, right? We, We say number one. Number one on the chart. But I think it's also a burden because if we're honest as men... Most of us, most of us, and we know this, we play second string to our wives on this topic. Not every single one of us and not in every single way, but more often than not, and this is where I start to to nudge a little, more often than not, we know we ride bench and they're first string. Right? Where they're bringing maybe more of the spiritual influence, where they're bringing more of the focus on the Bible, where they're bringing up more of the issue of prayer, where they add Jesus to the equation. I mean, think how many times you hear a testimony where a, a kid that's getting baptized says, uh, I accepted Christ uh, by mo- my mom shared Jesus with me on the edge of my bed when I was four. Or you hear somebody says, my mom was the spiritual giant in our home. Right. Uh, Or I learned a lot about Jesus from my my mother. I'll be really honest. I am pleasantly and joyfully surprised when I hear people say my dad was the giant. I mean, my dad was the ultimate spiritual example. A lot of people say my dad was dependable. He was a hard worker. He was a great guy. He took me fishing. We had a lot of fun. He is an, a, an icon of what it means to be a man in my life. I mean, all these great and wonderful things. I don't want to take away from those. But when it comes to the spiritual thing, a lot of times it's this default to mom. And, and I would say as a man who I would also venture to say um, probably plays second string too often... Uh, that's not best. It's just not best. Right? Now, that doesn't diminish anything about wives and moms at all. What I'm ta- talking about is elevating what we do as men. See, because I believe that Satan loves to keep us as men bench spiritually. I mean, I believe he loves it. Because he knows that, man, if men become ignited for Christ, and if they bring that into their home, and their kids are looking at their dad, and they're saying, this guy is solid, on fire, alive. He makes all his decisions through Christ. He's desperate for Jesus. If Satan sees that in a home, he'll want to kill it. Because he knows revival starts there. 
It starts there. I'm telling you, when men get passionate for Christ, other men watch. When men get passionate for Christ, that ignites kids. When men are passionate for Christ, kids want to follow in tow. They do. If it's passive, if it's duty, if it's like exercise or eating our broccoli, then that's what it is. And kids go, oh, you know, it's important. It's healthy. When I have kids someday, I'll probably do that too. But, but I, I look at it and go, but, but we're supposed to be different. Where it is our passion, it is our want. It is our priority. I mean, just doing the things that, that even knit us more to Christ, that kind of establish a deeper hunger for Christ in us. I mean, some of us as men, we'll get up very early to exercise or get up very early to go to work or we'll, we'll stay up late doing some project. Or we'll go out of our way for a lot of things that we say are good. The greatest thing is this, all the more, saying, I will be determined to do this. To strive for this truth in my life that I would seek and want and hunger for God and my family would see because my, my, my home is my church. I am the unique shepherd that God has given to my family. See, uh, this one, especially, I, I look at, and, and I, I, I see my own life, right, where I go, man, in the Boswell home, we have a lot of spiritual conversations. I mean, a lot. We talk about the Bible a lot in the Boswell home. But the things that I'm not so great at, um, I'm not really great at praying with my wife or praying with my kids. I'm not great at it. Right? I'm just not. And, and why am I not? Because the only one that's really excited about that is Satan. Nobody in my family is excited about that. I'm not excited about that. Jesus isn't excited about it. You're not excited about it hearing it. Right? Satan goes, oh, that's all. keep that going. So, so why don't I do this more? Right? So it, it's just things like that going, well, how do I, you know, make sure to push that more? And all of our lives, there's going to be different things that we push. But I'll tell you this, when, when it's on, when it's right, uh, when, when I am focused spiritually in my home, my home is at its best. I mean, I just know it. It sets a tone that is so different. When I'm down and worn and I'm thinking way too worldly about spiritual things and I'm just trying to manage life, the tone of my home is just not great. But man, when I come home and... There's a focus, and spiritually, it's the big idea, and everybody is kind of sinking up together spiritually. Man, that is bliss. That is happy. And that's as it should be. And so as men, we take seriously, my home is not my castle, and I'm not its king. My home is my church, and I am its shepherd. I function as the glue, the tone setter, the one that has authority, yes, and accountability. To bring Jesus to that environment. And I hope in this it's not that men are going to go, now you're making me feel guilty, man. Like, hey, get on to the funny stuff. No, this is, you know, it's like, this is the best of the best. If you go, man, I want my family to be the greatest family ever, then this is the first primary thing. First and primary. You may go, well, it's hard, it's not my thing, it needs to be your thing, and you figure out other hard things, we figure out this too. Right? 
Because those are the things I do. Well, I'm tired. It's this. It's that. Wah. Blah. Excuse. I mean, that's what I do in my own life. And then I recognize that. Right? So again, I don't come as one that's mastered it. I come as one who wants to be under the master figuring it out. I see the priority. Because a man's home is his church. What about a wife? What about a woman? It's a little different. I'd say a woman's home is her garden. A woman's home is her garden. Um, I'm not sure how many of you know Ruth Bellamy, but she is the uber gardener of Duval. She might as well be considered the honorary gardener of the city. All right. So, I mean, phenomenal. Green thumb. Goes at it all the time. And, and you know, I, I go down Cherry Valley Road. I live out that direction. So I pass her home often. And she has a very large garden out right there, kind of in the front next to her house. And, and every time I go by there in the summer, I'm amazed because, I mean, it's just it's beautiful and well manicured. And you know that somebody is really invested into that. But one of the things that always marks me is I look and there's no weeds and everything's well tied and well pruned and all the soil's just right and everything else. And I bet probably 70% of the time I drive by, Ruth is a member of the garden, all right? She's just in it. She's doing the work. She's weeding. She's pruning. She's tying. She's cleaning. She's making sure it all goes well. In other words, she is making sure deterioration doesn't happen as much as she's coaxing out the beauty of the garden. Right? She has to do both all the time. Pulling and pruning and shaping and seeing its beauty. And we all drive by and go, wow, what a great garden. We can all appreciate it going 25 Right? And we see it for seven seconds, maybe. Right? And, 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 and that's great, but what it takes for that is a lot. It's a lot, right? And I think that's just like moms. I know for moms in the home, it's a lot. I get it. It is. And sometimes, as it's a lot, uh, it's not always well appreciated. Uh, there's no paycheck tethered to it. There should be. Right? I think so. Matter of fact, I've said it often. I think my wife has a tougher job than I do. Right? Especially when our kids were younger. We would wake up. The kids would all be screaming, crying. I'm hungry. I need a diaper change. And then daddy needed to go to work. Right? So, you know, like daddy goes to work and then she's got that tough job. But then as they become teenagers, the job isn't any easier. It's just different. Right? Like if you have daughters, they get all kinds of emotions. Woo! You know, and... You know, and, and so you got that and you got your sons and that's a whole thing in and of itself, you know. And so it's a challenge to always be a mom that's gardening the home, but it's God's calling. In fact, it says in Titus 2, 4 and 5, train the younger women to love their husbands and children and to, it says, work at home. Now, here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to get into how that's accomplished. That's not really my big idea. So somebody says, so what are you going to say about career women versus working women versus stay-at-home women? I'm going to say, it's not my issue. I mean, really, that's, that's, that's not the primary issue that I have here. It's not how you do it. It's simply that it's occurring. Right? That the home is the number one priority under Christ as a wife and mom. How you choose to manage that, that's between you and Jesus and your spouse and all of that. But it's just saying the big idea is... Is that, right, that you tend your garden well? And part of that is just leveraging your time. 
right? Leveraging it well. So, you know, again, because there's a risk, because some people could look at this and say they need to keep their home or manage their home well or whatever terminology your particular version uses. And, and they'll say, so you need to have a spotless home and everything perfect and that fulfills what the Bible says. No, it doesn't say that. Because there are some who will make sure they have just this perfect, pristine, almost like just like it should be in Washington, D.C. and that be free of charge, right? Your house, right? Like, you know, like it's just a museum. But at the cost of joy in the home, at the cost of when your husband comes home, that it's like a happy environment and it'd be like, I worked all day. Yeah, go to bed. Or, you know, like, you know, that's not good. Right. So it's 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 really looking go, OK, how do I keep a home that balances all the things, the spiritual things, the emotional things, the need to get done things, having fun, but being disciplined? I mean, all of those things are the keeping of a home. And again, I'm not concerned with how you do it. Jesus, I don't believe, is terribly concerned with how you do it unless he leads you to certain things. But it's that it's being accomplished. That means getting a housekeeper for you. Bless you, right? Um, if it's not, bless you. It's just making sure the home is first, right? Because it's your garden. And just as the first garden, the mission was to help in tending and keeping, same thing. So men, our homes are our church. Women, our homes are your gardens. Third, for a child, a child's home is their country. It is your country. When my children were born, they received a citizen certificate. Welcome to the United States of Matt and Ellen. We win. All right. So um, pretty close. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, this is different. Remember, we talked earlier about submission and all Christians are to submit. And then it talks about wives submit to their husbands. And we said submit is different than obedience. Here's the fundamental difference. Submit means to uphold a general sense of order. Obey here means fulfilling specific orders, my daughters. Um, right. So obey is very different than submit. It's very particular. So children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother this is the first commandment with a promise. All right. Now, I'll tell you what I love about this. Obey and honor. This was used of citizens and how they were to respond to the king and the queen back there um, to honor and obey. The thing about this is obey is an action. Honor is an attitude. And, and both are to be true in your lives as kids. Both are. And they're not always easy. I remember one time I heard the story. Mother was driving in the car. Her little boy was in the backseat. He was jumping around. He's climbing all over the place. And she was getting onto his case. And she finally just said, just sit down now. So he sat down. She says, isn't that better? And he says, listen, woman. On the outside, I may be sitting down. But on the inside, I am standing up. And that is the difference between obey and honor. He obeyed, but he didn't honor. Right? So both are to be true of kids that you honor and obey. Right? Why? It says, so that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Translation, they don't kill you. All right? So 
Why do you honor? Why do you obey? So you don't die. That's what he says. Actually, he says, A, because it's right. It's just right to do, right? B, he says, it's beneficial. It will go well with you. You'll live long. And then third, it's worshipful. If you go into Colossians 3, it says, children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Brings God pleasure when kids obey, when kids honor, right? And that really should be the heart that, that you have. And, and not just younger kids, not just kids in our home. Even as adult children, it should be the same thing. We have adult parents and we're out of the home and everything else, but still the heart should be to honor them. Obedience changes once you've kind of left and cleft and all of that kind of thing. But, but still the heart should be, I want to honor my parents. Right? To show them this sense of worth. Because of who they are in my life, who God has made them to be. And of course, with the younger, obey and honor is God's way of blessing you. And so we've dealt with moms, with dads, with kids. All of that comes together in the home. The home and the home dynamic. And what is the home dynamic? Well, our homes in a lot of ways, are to be like seminaries, which already sounds super cool, doesn't it? Um, seminary, nothing like that, all right? Here's what I mean by how our homes are to be like seminaries. They are establishments of teaching the things about God. That's really what a seminary is designed to do. You don't go to seminary and learn geometry. You go to a seminary and learn theology, Right? And there's a reason. It's designed to say, hey, the emphasis here is on God, is on Jesus, is on the Holy Spirit. And so in the family dynamic, in the home dynamic, the very first thing that's true is that it causes in us as adults something very important. It's, it's growth. When we take on a spouse, when we take on a home, it drives in us growth. Nothing shapes the soul more than having a family. Getting married does it some. I think having kids does it even more. I mean, really, I'll tell my oldest often, I'll say, you, you taught me to be a dad. When you were born, and then eventually your sister, and then your brother, all of you, God uses as a sovereign tool to shape my soul. Right? And, and it's weird because who I was before kids was very different than after. My kids let me know all the time. Right? I'll be like, I was so cool. And they're like, no, you weren't. You were never cool. You know what I mean? And like, they don't know the cool you. They know kind of the goofy you. They know the 40-year-old balding kind of starting to pork out you. They don't know the, once I was really cool, had a fast car, not a safe car cool. Right? So, you know, it's like, they don't know I had a moped with a lightning bolt cool. Right? So, you know, they don't know that. They don't know any of their, and it shapes you. You're safer, you're saner, you're all those things because they speak into your lives at a whole new level. Another thing about kids, man, they show how sinful we are as human beings. I know we don't think that, but they do. They show either because we neglect them and it shows that it's all about us, or sometimes we worship our kids and therefore it's all about us having something to worship, which is our children. I mean, it shows we're sinful. I think most of us would say, you know what? We're honest people, but evaluate your parenting. You'll find out you're a liar. You are. I know you're struggling with that, but it's real simple. Uh, things like, um, uh, Daddy, if I leave my tooth under the pillow, what will happen? 
when there's this little teeny fairy that comes, right? You know, and it's going to come and take your tooth and give you cash. You know, Santa real? Yes, he is, right? Um, Mommy, Daddy, why is your door locked? Oh, <laughs> we're just wrestling, you know. Um, <laughs> just brings out lies, all right? So, shows we're very human, right? Very human. And I think also in this, uh, what's great about it is then we are required to desperately go to God for his grace. I mean, really, as parents, it causes us to desperately go and say, I, 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 I need you, Jesus. I, I don't know fully what I'm doing. You know, everybody says that when they come, you just know. No, you don't. You don't just know. And sometimes you're overwhelmed. And as soon as you start to master a level, you know what they do? They evolve, you know? So, like, I've got six years old figured out, up, oh, but they jumped to seven and everything changed. Right? And it's always shifting that way. And so all the more we go, I need grace. When you have kids that confront your inner Pharisee, you turn to a lot of law as a parent. Right? A lot of law. We realize a lot of our fears, our insecurities, our pride. All of that comes out when we become parents and a home is established. And so I think it is an act of God's grace because it grows us as parents. At the same time, a home as a seminary is also for the kids to know. To know about sin, right? To know about Christ, to know about His cross, to know about forgiveness, to know about His Word, to know about His church. It's a seminary for kids to know how to do life and work and parenting and marriage for the glory of God. We as families get to teach that. And I will say it very, very strongly. We as families should be the first place that happens. The first place. The church, youth group, children's ministry, Awana, whatever programs are out there, they should augment this, not lead the way in this. They should not lead the way. We should lead the way in our kids knowing these things. In fact, if anything, as Christian parents and families, the reason God has us together is to have godly offspring. In fact, it says that in Malachi 2.5. It says, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. This is why Genesis 1 and 2 happens. He brings the two into one and he says, go, be fruitful, multiply. And what he wants in that is godly offspring. And what makes a godly offspring, a godly child? I bring us back to Titus chapter 2. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our glorious great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What makes a godly kid? That passage there. That's the passage. See, when our kids are born, they're born as one of two potential things. A prodigal or a Pharisee. That's it. They're born under the blight of sin, and they will mature into a prodigal or a Pharisee. Unless something is there to fill in the gap. 
And the gap is the gospel that needs to be placed in there. So when we think about, well, how do you, how do you raise a godly kid? And people go, well, you spank them. That's how you get a godly kid. Right? You spank them. Others say, no, no, no. You educate them. You love them. You inspire them. You empower them. Sound like George Bush. Um, no, uh, you give them the gospel. The only route to a godly kid is the gospel. Other things can give you a good kid. Law can give you a good kid. Spanking them can give you a good kid. Honing them can give you a good kid. Inspiring them can give you a good kid. It's not going to give you a godly kid. Only the gospel makes godly kids. And so in our homes, as seminaries, we bring gospel, right? We bring the seminary of grace. We bring the message of Jesus. We make sure they hear it often. We make sure they hear it in all sorts of varieties and contexts. We make sure to point them to Jesus in all things that happen. When they do something foolish, you point them to Jesus. When they do something worthy of praise, you point them to Jesus. When you have all opportunity, you point them to Jesus. That's what we're really called to do. Matter of fact, you see that in Deuteronomy 6, when God is talking to the Israelites, he's like, teach them when they sit down, when they rise up, when you're walking, when you're hanging out. Teach, teach, teach. But teach from the platform that it's real. Don't teach from the platform of just religion. We must know this Jesus to impart him. We must dwell with this Jesus to really give him well. And so that's what we want to do. In fact, as Paul gets into this more in Ephesians chapter 6 and also in Colossians chapter 3, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He has a similar thing in Colossians 3. He says, fathers are probably realistically in Greek parents. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, the first thing here, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's to do with what we teach, right? I mean, what do we really impart to them? What do we give to them as parents? This is what it is. The instruction idea of the Lord and, and, and teaching it in this way, the discipline part, man, that's just good, solid stuff about Jesus. That's doctrine and appreciation of the gospel, of the Bible, of the church. I mean, let them know the truth. Make sure this book is a book they see with you often and with me, right? Then they go, man, my parents are parents of the book. And the Jesus of that book, right? That's the idea of discipline here. It's not discipline like we think as far as chastisement or spanking or making sure they're orderly. The word here really is this idea of doctrine. Instruction is then packed them full of that. So know the truth and make sure it's packed in fully. And on this topic, I, I look at this and, and I go, man, it's really important we get this because everything starts with a principle, and once you have a principle, then you put inside that principle all the details that reinforce the principle. But if you get the principle wrong, you're going to pick all sorts of details that reinforces a wrong principle. It makes a mess. And sometimes, especially in Christian parenting, the challenge is the fact that we, we overlook sometimes the big idea when it comes to us and our kids. And I know this is something that I have struggled with historically, and I think God has had my attention on more in recent years but it's, again, the, the principle that we chiefly can go to. And for some families and some individuals, 
uh, they go to the idea of the principle being chiefly about law instead of it being chiefly about grace. Right? And, and it seems strange because, again, the very foundation of our Christian life is grace. I mean, that's the doctrinal statement of Christianity. Grace, it's unlike any other thing. Everything else is enlightenment or works or effort. We say grace, and then we parent, though, and sometimes we just almost forget grace in the context of law. So what does that look like? Well, sometimes when we parent from the platform of law, we emphasize what we're against. But grace emphasizes what we're for. Under law, we teach a fear of doing what is wrong. Under gospel, we seek to teach about what is to do right. Under law, sometimes it's a call for duty, but under gospel, it is a call for delight. Under law, we'll say, follow God, but under gospel, we'll say, desire God. When they break the law, under law, they'll see anger. Under gospel, they'll see grief. Under law, we seek behavior, but under gospel, we seek belief. Under law, there might be chastisement. Under gospel, there's correction. Under law, the parent seeks to win. Under gospel, the parent seeks to win over. Under law, we seek to make a point, but under gospel, we strive to make a difference. And the reason is simple. Law, according to the law, is designed to enslave. And the gospel is to liberate. That's the difference. And sometimes we as parents, we parent from the perspective of trying to just control them. Right? To shackle them. To keep them from. But gospel says, I want to take you to. And so we have to confront those things at times. Sometimes we don't parent in the law gospel distinction. We, we parent in the good versus godly distinction. And if we parent and we say, I want to have a good kid, we'll focus on them being responsible. A godly kid will focus on them being worshipful. A good kid will want to make sure they're good in school, but a godly kid, we want to make sure they witness in school. A good kid is well-liked, but a godly kid lives well. A good kid could stand out, but a godly kid will stand up. A good kid serves the community. A godly kid shares Christ. A good kid, we think, well, what would others think? But a godly kid, we think, well, what would Jesus think? Now, with that list, I'm not saying the first ones are bad at all. Not a bit. I think they're all good things. Serving the community is good. Being responsible is good. Good in school is good. Standing out is good. That's all good. It's all good. What it ultimately comes down to is motive. Motive. Do I want my kid good for Christ's sake? Well, then that's godly. But if Christ doesn't really enter the conversation or the equation or the expectation or the focus, if I put a lot of place on performance and academics and athleticism and other extracurricular, but I'm not lodging it with for Jesus, for God's glory, as an opportunity. And it's just good stuff. Good isn't bad. Good's good. But good isn't necessarily godly. And that's the difference. That's the difference. It really does come down to what we emphasize, which is why Paul says, of the Lord. Right? The discipline and instruction of the Lord. Other things are discipline and instruction of our culture. Of being an American, 
of being a good citizen. Not bad things. Good things. But if we want to emphasize the godly things, the right things, then he says, man, that's in the Lord. And, and that's what we want to strive for. The why is everything. The why is everything. I mean, think about what Jesus dealt with when he came to very good people. Pharisees were good people. The religious establishment were good people. But he says in Matthew 15, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They were good people, but they weren't godly people. They weren't worshipful people. You see something similar in Deuteronomy 28. God tells Israel, all these curses will come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes and his commands. He says, these shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. How strange. He says, it's not just enough to just obey. He says, I want you to have joy and gladness of heart in that. That's the difference between good and godly. I mean, again, the gospel makes us godly. Grace empowers us to be godly. Jesus deals with the church of Laodicea. He says, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. He says, I wish you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich and I have prospered, I need nothing. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Right? I, I know these are like really heavy things. You're like, oh man, all right, is it time? Um, if it wasn't so important, I, I, I wouldn't make a big thing. But it's so important what we emphasize. And so we have to take stock. We have to take note and say, what is truly most important? That I have a good kid or I have a godly kid? That I have a compliant kid or a Christ-centered kid? The difference in those things are really just making much of Jesus versus much of everything else but. Right? And so that's where we do the analysis. We kind of look at ourselves and go, man, what is the big idea? What's the emphasis? In fact, to highlight that, I have gumballs. Who doesn't love gumballs? All right, I mean, that's a great way to lighten it. We'll go straight to the gumballs. So, um, what, what, what I've looked at here is I thought, okay, every gumball is a segment of time in our child's week. In fact, for this, uh, every gumball is 30 minutes. Why 30 minutes? I'm paying homage to Seinfeld, all right? So, um, 30 minutes of life, right? And so you, you look at the average kid's week. When I say average, I'm kind of averaging from kindergarten through senior. You take it all together. You kind of cross-section it. These are just averages. They're stereotypes. But you look at their week and you go, okay, well, where does all the time go? And I'm not talking about sleep. This is waking time. The first is going to be school. School eats up a ton between going, between homework. It's a lot of hours. If we average it, it's about 40 hours, right? So... If you went to public school, you might not be able to do the math, you private school people. You, uh, look at that. You need a half an hour back. All right, so, that kid was playing hooky. All right, so, um, 80 gumballs, 40 hours, right? And it goes there. And so all of that school, all that homework, everything else, that's what we do. Then, 
uh, a lot of us, we have extracurricular. We have sports, we have activities, we have music, we have dance, we have drama, we have whatever. And on average, uh, nowadays especially, especially when they get to the high school level, you can have upwards of 20 hours a week that goes into this. Uh, For some, it's lower. Kids are younger, it's lower. But we kind of go with this and go, okay, so then you add on another 20 hours, roughly, for those activities. And then as a family, want to hang out, have some fun, have some downtime, hobby time, that's roughly another 21 hours a week that goes into television, movies, internet stuff, hanging out, reading books, whatever it is, all those amounts of time. Right? That's our child's life. Now, we get to the spiritual, and we go to church for an hour and a half. Right? The question after that is, what else do we do to augment? Some may say, well, I send my kid to youth group. That's pretty good. So that takes us now to three hours. Maybe we pray with our child three to five minutes a night. So for a week, because this is a week here, we get that. But when you think about it comparatively, it's that whole like, yeah, why, why is that? And, and most of this so far has been because I take them someplace. I drop them off in a location. Uh, what, what are the, the things that, that God wants me to take hold of and say, I need to, to make more of that contribution. Because all these other things are, 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 are jockeying. And I want to make the investment. Another one of the challenges in this is what sometimes happens is we go, that's the week and we put that in. Um, but we have a Sunday sporting event, so I need to do that. Now, here's what's strange about that. A lot of times for us, and I know this is a little bit confronting, um, but if it's between this right here or this, more often than not, this loses to this. I mean, rarely do we say, we're not going to do a sporting event because we have church. So we're not going to do church because we have a sporting event. We have another activity, right? So we do that. Or, you know, it's, we want to do some hobbyish things, so I'm going to take these away and do this thing. Or, if your kids are involved in youth group, uh, what we do is we say, oh, they didn't do well at school, so we're not going to have them go to youth group. They have to stay home and do their homework. Now, again, am I saying that's always wrong? No. Am I saying you're in sin? No. What I'm doing is causing us to think about what we emphasize, what our priorities are. Because we say, this is number one. We tell our kids there's nothing more important than God. But in a court of law, could we be accused of that and tried and found guilty? I mean, that's the question. And I raise that for myself. I mean, I had to look into this a little bit and say, okay, so if I wasn't a pastor, I mean, there's, there's a reason I'm here for these. Um, you know, w- w- would I be faithful? Is it the priority? Right? I mean, even crazy things too, like y- you'll notice that on all the others, we're always on time for these. But we're often late for these. Right? I'm like, how many of you are like, I'm consistently late for my kid's soccer game? <laughs> Coach won't put up with that. Right. I mean, again, it just, again, it, it comes down to our priorities. How much do we brag about these things that our kids accomplish? 
versus how much do we brag about their sport activity things. I mean, really, and it's like every year families typically put together the end of the year letter, what everybody did. How much do we talk about our kids' spiritual development? Right? That little Jimmy came to Christ, that Jan memorized James and is going to Disneyland, that they faithfully are a part of some ministry. Right? I mean, that's the big idea, the big opportunity to showcase the family versus all of the other achievements. But we overlook the spiritual, the one that we say is the most important. Again, I only bring it up for awareness. And I bring it up as one guilty. I'm guilty. I know it should be different, and it's not different. And so, all the more looking at, all right, what do I, what do I emphasize? What do I teach? What do I emphasize? The last thing, and we'll move to this real quick, is how we discipline. All right, how we discipline. Matter of fact, for this, got March Madness coming, we've got a basketball. This is your kid, right? He's got that spray-on tan thing going on. And, um, and when it comes to discipline, you have to make a decision as a kid because if you do nothing, that's what's going to happen. And they're just going to go whatever direction it happens to go. Right? It doesn't work well doing it that way. So some go, okay, well, I'm going to do it this way. real hard. I'm going to make sure that it keeps going and you apply a lot of force. The danger in applying all of that force is as soon as you try to juke or move or do something, you know what? You don't have real control and they're going to shoot off in a direction. And so some parents, you're trying to do it so hard and keep them under control so much, you're going to lose them. At the same time, there's some parents that are just like... Oh, gee, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, whatever. That's not good either. You know, I want them to have their own freedom, find their own way, you know. Bad call, you know. I mean, you don't want that. So, you, you know, in, in, in dribbling a basketball well, there's just this even pressure, right, that you keep applied to the ball. Just right, right in the middle. And that's really the way we want to discipline. When he says, do not provoke your children to anger lest they become discouraged. Right? Just banging on them is not going to do it. And some people think it is. Like, the more you lecture a kid, the more they're going to change. Uh (laughs) How about you come to my office for three weeks every day and I will lecture you on your weaknesses. And we'll see how well you change, right? So, um... It's not going to work. There has to be this, this special place, right? Uh, and, and, and again, this comes down in part to how, how we do it, and how is right there. Don't provoke your children to anger, lest they become discouraged. Don't drive them, jam on them, lecture them constantly, let them know they're failing all the time. That is, that is not going to help. But in this, we have to keep in mind also the why. And the why is better off being stated as the for whom. We don't parent our kids and discipline our kids for us, but for him. For him. We want to make sure it's for his namesake and for his glory. If we miss that, if it's not for him and we're just trying to control their behavior, Satan can love that too. In fact, uh, I remember I read a quote from Donald Barnhouse 
He said, if Satan took over a city, all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, the pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other, there would be no swearing, the children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ was not preached. I mean, Satan loves homes that are very, very disciplined, and Jesus is never pointed to. As much as he loves chaotic homes. He loves bam, bam, bam. As much as he loves just wander off. Christ has to be the center. And so as parents, we have to decide, how do we see discipline? Do we see it as punishment? Or do we see it as discipleship? How do we see discipline as punishment or as discipleship? Uh, The difference is simple. One is correction-centered. The other is cross-centered. One parents from the perspective of approaching it like a former child. This is how my dad did it. This is how I'm going to do it. And sometimes it has this air of superiority. I just know better than you. Now, as parents, I think we should know better than our kids. But you know how we need to approach it when it's discipleship-based? I am a fellow sinner coming alongside you as a sinner. And I am showing you the gospel. That's discipleship. The, the, the difference is even in intent and outcome. I mean, you think about um, discipline as punishment, for example. You know where it stops? It stops at the consequence. And at best, it stops with a demand for an apology somewhere. But when it's discipleship, it goes to consequence. And then it says, and do you know who paid the price for what you've done? Well, it's not you. It's Jesus. And it doesn't end with a demand simply for an apology. It ends with the idea of saying, you need to confess your sin, ask for forgiveness, repent. And in that, the last step is you're forgiven. Right? Bringing the cross. Bringing the gospel. That's discipleship. Not just discipline. And so, with all of that said, which is more than enough, I'm sure, the way we parent is with a very simple phrase. One we know as a church. It's all about Jesus. What we are as husbands, as wives, as young men, young women, kids, and homes. It's all about Jesus, right? Because Christian homes house Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that your spirit would come behind on this one and continue to do a work and continue to bring uh, both grace and thought and evaluation You know my heart in all of this has not been to beat anything other than a drum to make us aware, to explore ourselves and our lives, to look to your grace, strengthen, to resolve, to heal, to enlighten. We love you. We thank you. We need you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.